Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me makes me stronger. Sean, good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing awesome. How are you doing, brother? I am doing well. Thank you for joining me on this uh, little experiment of mine. Good to actually see you. I think this might be the longest stretch I've gone without seeing you in like 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> longest stretch, not being on a plane, not seeing people. It's, it's strange, strange times. I want to delve into your story because I think it's it's really interesting. And you've survived a lot, gone through a lot to be where you are today. It's something I'd love to explore with you. You've got such a cool job today. Can you just start out by sort of explaining uh, your your official title and and uh, what it is you're doing today? <laughs> yeah, of course. I, I hope I don't get in trouble for this. No, I do have an amazing job, and I truly love love what I do. Um, so yeah, I, I work for a, a great firm called Michael Best that is based out of the Midwest, uh, which is where I'm from originally. I head up our team called called Venture Best, and it's about 55 or so attorneys and other folks that really work in the, the growth company space, emerging markets, and then uh, with a lot of corporate VC funds, VC funds, PE funds. I guess I'm using way too many acronyms here, but a, a whole bunch of different funds and then family offices. And really, my role is to, to be a leader for the team. So we have, we have offices in just super cool markets like Austin, Salt Lake, Raleigh, Madison, Chicago, um, here in, in Colorado. So really to lead that team, help with that, but, but then also to, to really spend time building that community. I know you and I have done a lot in that regard, but yeah, I get to work with a handful of key clients and, and really help with the front end, but but mostly my job is making those connections, helping people, you know, find the right funding, find the right service providers, things like that. So it's a long time coming, but it's it's an awesome role. I I love I love it to death. It sounds like such a you know I think a, a dream job for a, probably a lot of attorneys who are out there up to their necks in PPP paperwork <laughs> or or what have you right now. Yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, it's it's a relatively new role for you and it's it's been super cool to see from perspective of a long long-time client because you're traveling around the country, you're on a lot of panels at least when that was uh <laughs> when that was allowed before <laughs> the world ended here. Yeah. Now it's now it's Zoom panels which are way less fun, yeah. And your 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 network has expanded so much and and I think your ability to to focus on the things that you love has expanded so much. But I've seen you kind of go through three different firms. And I know, you know, this has been a, a, a long journey. You had Stigler Wusso, Braverman, you had Modus Law, and eventually that became, that turned into joining Michael Bess. How did you get started on that path? Because I know you didn't start out as a lawyer. No, I appreciate that. And I think we both, I can tell from your voice and certainly mine, we, we do still both spend a lot of time on the phone and you're, you know, you're just trying to help people. And I think that, I mean, just coming back to your question is where it starts. 
Gosh, I mean, to go back a little bit, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin, went to a, a great high school, really fortunate, had a, had a great group of friends. And we didn't grow up with a ton of money. I, I didn't ever want for anything, but pretty modest upbringing. And, and so I went to University of Wisconsin and I knew I had to get a job um, and, and a good job. And so I, I still remember to this day, like going to the career services office and I'm a little bit older than you, but I remember they used to have like clipboards at the job postings. So they'd be like two hole punch clipboards on the wall. There was like four clipboards for accounting jobs. And then finance had like one clipboard. Marketing had like one clipboard. So I was like, why is there so many accounting jobs? And the career people were like, oh, the, the world always needs accountants. Like there's so many jobs for accountants. And I was like, oh, I guess that's what I'll do. Because I was like, I need to get a job. You know, I need to do something that pays pretty well. So I went into accounting, which like anyone who knows me, who doesn't know that fact, they're like, you did what? It's just not really my nature to just sit and grind out tax returns or or things like that. So, but I did that. And I, I was super fortunate, got a job for Arthur Anderson, which folks who are, you know, over the age of 35 or so probably still know who that is. And yeah, I, I worked with this amazing group called the Enterprise Group that helped privately held businesses, all, all different sizes, you know. I mean, a lot of them, you'd know the names like Coles and the Johnson family, folks like that. But then also smaller companies, even at the time, like the family that owned Trek and Trek Bicycles. So that's where I got my initial introduction to entrepreneurs and kind of the, the growing business or the emerging businesses. And so I, I love that energy. I loved getting to learn from from that community. But I knew doing 1065s and 1120s, which are the, the corporate tax returns, and then the individual tax returns was not going to be what got me out of bed in the morning. And Arthur back in the day was, you know, very, very strict. Like it was, they really considered it a privilege to work there. They, their philosophy was like, you should pay us to work here. And in a lot of ways, like that's true. I mean... I learned so much in those those three years, but just just to put it into perspective, which they're gone now, so I don't think I can get in trouble for saying this, but I started off making $37,000 a year, which, you know, this was like in the late 90s, so it's not that long ago. And I would bill like 2,200 to 2,400 hours a year at like $290 an hour. So you figure they're taking in 600 grand a year. <laughs> I worked in a cubicle, 37 other folks. And then, um, yeah, so I mean, all in, maybe it costs 80 grand. So long-winded introduction on that, but that's, that's kind of how I got started in that scene. And then just, it was one of those things, the, the way their comp worked is you either, after like three years, they really started to bump you up a fair amount in pay. And I was living in the Midwest and I kind of knew I wanted to get West. And so I thought, if I don't make a move now, like I'm going to buy the boat and the Porsche and get a mortgage and just kind of be locked into this forever. And so I, I moved to Colorado, moved to Boulder in 2000, really 1999. Didn't know a single person. Went to law school at CU and just was an amazing experience. I know you really enjoyed your law school experience as well at DU. But just such a welcoming community. And I think I was just so fortunate to come here right when the entrepreneur scene was just exploding. So yeah, so worked for a firm called Berghill, Greenleaf and Rashidi uh, as they were getting formed. Great, great firm, bunch of great folks there. I actually, I met this guy, John Banaschek at the law school. He had started his own firm and then merged it into Berghill. Just super go-getter guy, super entrepreneurial 
And so I was like, hey, can I just like take you out for coffee and just kind of hear your story? And he's like, why don't you just come work for us? Like we need people to run to the courthouse. We need people to do grunt work. So started with them and learned a lot from them, but really always had that calling to, to do something on my own. So shortly after I graduated, I worked with them through, through law school and then started my own firm, my friend Mike Wusso. And we were, you know, we originally only had one office in the Spruce Street mansion, which is a great building. I know you've, you've been there, Michael, many times with us, but um, started there I think our rent was like a thousand bucks a month and we shared a phone system with another law firm. You know, we did all our own engagement letters. I still remember like three hole punching documents and putting them in binders late night, you know, did that whole thing. And kind of, we started to grow a little bit and Mike, who I I just, he's infinitely smarter than I am and just a a great guy. We just kind of had different visions of what we wanted. So eventually he left and started doing some real estate work and some other things. And I kind of transitioned that with Bennett Braverman and then eventually Modus. And, you know, Modus was just really, I, I didn't like the way legal services were done in a lot of ways. I, I don't think they're as transparent as they could be. I don't think they're as as predictable. And, and I think I'm a huge fan, as you know, project-based pricing, which you can't always do, but I, I just want to get us more and more there. And we, we got a ton of traction so we grew from really nothing to about 15 folks. Yeah, that was about two and a half years ago. Really, w- what started to happen was, and I know you and I talk about this a lot, and we're both big readers and podcasters. Like, I started to think about what gets me out of bed in the morning, what, what I care about, and both for my team, my business family, and then all the people I get to work with. And it's like, you want to create opportunities and you, you want people to become their highest and best selves. and what was kind of happening is we were good. We were a great firm. We had great people, but we didn't have the scale and the reach to A, create the opportunities for some of the people on my team to continue to grow and and become their best selves. And then also, you know, we hit, you know, you and I have worked together for a long time since you were, you know, 17. Just kidding. Pretty close. (laughs) Pretty close. Yeah. You started to be like, oh, we don't have a great patent team. We don't have a great cybersecurity team. We don't have maybe some good connections in Austin where, where you might, you know, need some, some contacts for the natural food scene. So, so, you know, I'll kind of leave it there, but that's kind of when Michael Best came knocking, that's, that's what was on the door. And, and we spent a year and change kind of making sure it was a good fit for everyone. And, and that's how we got here. That's awesome. In many ways, you kind of took a re- reverse uh, arc to what a lot of attorneys do. You started with your own shingle, and then you joined <laughs> you joined the big firm later on. But at the at the top instead of the bottom, which uh, sounds uh, very much preferable. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely compared to my Arthur, we always used to joke at Modus that we were going to have you know quote unquote real law firm days where. Uh, three people gave you a deadline for the same day and you had to wear a suit and, you know, staplers were getting thrown around, which thankfully we don't, we don't have any of those things at, at our firm, but yeah, I was pretty lucky that way. Yeah. Lucky that you got out of Arthur uh, before the Enron takedown. Oh man. So lucky. So lucky. Although they became Accenture, which uh, is now, uh, I think, what are they? They're not the biggest. They're one of the biggest consulting firms in the world. Yeah. Those, those folks do all right. They're, they're going to pull through. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they'll be all right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you get you get out of law school, you hang up your own shingle. What gave you the confidence to go do that? Because that, I mean, just like starting your own company, 
that requires a lot of confidence in yourself and, and a lot of conviction and, and I know is a scary enterprise in a lot of ways. What made you want to do that? There's a few factors. One, as much as I love Berg Hill, I just like, I saw their model and what they were doing. And I just, I didn't think that was a good fit for me. And it, I couldn't see a path. And I think, especially in a time like we're living in now, you know, it's really, as you know, better than most, like this is a time when a lot of great companies get formed, whether it was the 2001 recession, the 2008 recession, it's these times of distress that good opportunities come about. And so we were kind of in that post 2001 crash window still, and especially the Boulder area did get hit pretty hard by that. The tech was just growing here. So it was, it was kind of perfectly awful timing. So I knew I didn't love the, the traditional law firm model and I, I thought I could do better, <laughs> just cocky, I guess. And then I did have this great partner, Mike Wusso, who had worked at, you know, Sidley Austin and clerk for the Supreme Court in Wisconsin is just super smart guy. And, you know, about eight, nine years older than me. So I felt like I had a great, great wingman. And then the third thing, which I think a lot of folks are talking about now is I had saved a bunch of money. I mean, not a bunch, but enough where we kind of said, we don't have to make any money for six months. We have such low overhead and I have a, a bit of a reserve. So we're just going to go out there in the community. And and Bradfeld has the, the famous book and phrase of, of give first. So we're, we're going to get out there. We're going to, we're going to offer things. We're going to build our network. We're going to build our message and we're going to, we're going to just give and listen to what people are looking for. And I think that was just so fortunate. And then, you know, I'm a hustler and not in a, in a bad way, but um, you know, my thing was I would do three meetings, at least three meetings a day, every day with people I didn't know. And so this was kind of pre LinkedIn. So you'd find good accountants, you know, friends of ours, like Kurtz Fargo, good financial advisors, folks like that. And you just kept building that network. And then every time you met with someone new, you just offered to help, which I still do to this, to this day. I was just making some introductions before I hopped on. So, so I think it was really those three things. One, just not loving the model Two, having a, a great, super smart person to start with. And then three, having enough cash reserves, honestly, to not have to make bad decisions, right? Not have to like be short-sighted and, and say, oh, this is how I'm going to extract the most money out of this person. It was, it was just the opposite. And, and honestly, I keep that philosophy to this day, sometimes, sometimes to my detriment for certain. So. Were you able to be cash flowing within this in the first six months? I mean, was it immediate, you know, relative success there? Or was was it a challenge? We actually made money our first month. So I think it was like, <laughs> we just, you know, split everything. It was very, very simple accounting. But I mean, that, it was like maybe like 1200 bucks or something. <laughs> but it was awesome. I was so psyched. And, you know, I, back in the day, I literally used to just write checks out of, you know, one of those big, like, almost like a binder kind of thing where it has the little stub on the side. So I, I still remember, you know, writing the check half to Mike, half to me. And that's how we did our draws. And, you know, you just kind of keep an eye on things month in and month out. But yeah, I don't think we ever, I don't think we were ever negative, even in those first six months. I'd, I'd have to go back and look. As we grew, we certainly, I can remember writing $50,000, checks the wrong direction, as I like to say. But yeah, on those initial days before we really started the, the growth, we, we cash flowed right out of the gate, which was so awesome. That's great. 
what was it like when you guys decided to go separate ways? You, I mean, you built something, it was working, you've got a, a partner that clearly you relied on and you realize it's not, you know, it's not working out. I, I'd imagine it's a little bit like a marriage, even if it's, uh, even if it was on, on friendly terms. For sure. And full disclosure, like I, it's one of those things I, it's a regret. I mean, for lack of a better word, I didn't handle it as well as I could have. I'm, I'm honestly not a big conflict guy. You, you know, these folks too, Michael, like the litigator types or the folks who sort of get a rise out of that. And I'm, I'm the opposite. And in fact, so much so that sometimes my, my not wanting conflict actually ends up creating more conflict. And so with, with Mike, I didn't do as good a job as, as I should have. And honestly, our relationship was strained for a while and it's come back around and he's, he's doing great things. But yeah, I kind of, it was one of those things I had thought about it a lot in my head and, and knew it was right and decided. And I didn't include him in those conversations as much as I should have. And in the end, I think we both would look back and say a thousand percent, it was the right thing. And, but yeah, it was, it was super tough. It was super stressful, honestly. And again, it was like coming out from underneath your uncle or your dad or someone you really respected. And now, now I was kind of all alone without that wingman. So it was, it was stressful on a lot of levels. And like I said, I, I love Mike to death and respect him more than he knows, but um, it was something I could have done better for sure. How did that experience shape the way you approached those types of situations moving forward? I recall one conversation you and I had in particular when I was going down a certain path and you, you said, Michael, I'm not a, I'm not a wartime consigliere. So <laughs> if you want to go down this path, you know, you're going to need to find someone else to help you. So I, it seems to me that you, uh, you develop at least at some point, a certain amount of self-awareness about that and the ability to advocate around that. How did that, how did that shape your future path? appreciate the question. And I remember the conversation well, for all its faults, I think, you know, much of life can be uh, advised upon by the, by the Godfather trilogy, uh, some good, some bad. So <laughs> no, I think, I think you're very right. Like I think in that level, I do know I'm just not going to be a, a confrontationalist person and, and I, it's not an aptitude. And so I think to your point, I'm self-aware now and I either know whether it's interpersonal relationships, I need coaching on that and, and I might need, um, you know, I'm a big proponent of coaches and advisors and therapists for that matter. So bringing in people who are good at that when you're having those issues, we're fortunate enough to be able to do that. So I think there's, I learned both that and again, part of the benefit of leveling up a team is now I have folks like you know, Patrick Bernal, who you know as well, who is an incredibly nice guy, but is just like, it's like arguing with a rock, you know, when, when you're on the other side of him, he's, he's just really good at him. He's a gentleman and professional, but, but now you, you bring those, those people in. And I think, I forget who says it, it's not Horowitz, but it's, you know, be, be great at what you're good at. And I think I grew up with this philosophy that like you, you, you had to do the hard stuff. My, my dad is someone who worked and works really hard, but I think sometimes it's better to find what you're good at. So it's not so hard. And, and like, even being an accountant, like I felt like I had to work hard. I had to do the hard thing. And it turns out like, I'm just not that good at that. And I could do that for a thousand years and I wouldn't enjoy it and I wouldn't be that good at it. So what am I good at? I'm good at 
the big picture. I'm good at the architect. I'm good at explaining things. I'm good at connecting people. And so, you know, I kind of learned again from that self-evaluation, don't get decent at what you're horrible at, get great at what you're good at. And, and again, that's what I'm fortunate enough to get to do now. It also creates opportunities for other people to do what they're good at. So yeah, I, I think it, it's actually, you know, same thing with some other personal relationships. Like if you can't learn from your mistakes and, and start to really look inward, it's, it's going to be a long, bumpy road forever. <laughs> so I'm trying to, trying to help mitigate that a little bit. It's an interesting dynamic doing doing the hard thing or, or avoiding the hard thing because I think sometimes just because it comes naturally to you doesn't mean it's hard, right? I when I first met you, you weren't reachable. I think it was on Thursdays because you were you were doing search and rescue missions in the mountains. How did you get about doing that, and how did how did being confronted with those life and death situations shape how you approach work? No, I think, and you and I have talked about this before. I mean, we've both on so many levels been so fortunate. And I think even just our generation and the generation behind us, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? We're going through this pandemic right now and, and certainly a lot of people are suffering and, and there's some costs, but you know, you and I have never had, we've never been drafted. We've never had to fight in a war. We've never had food shortages. I, I've never been in the military period. And so I sort of got to a point in my life where I just realized how lucky I was. And I really wanted to give back on some level. And, of, you know, of course we do charitable things. We do panels, things like that, but I wanted to do something more impactful or at least more substantive. And I still remember seeing this the sign that was up in, in Winter Park that said something very similar to you, no pay, horrible hours, god awful working conditions, volunteers needed, like Grand County Search and Rescue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty awesome. Mike, Mike Lazier, I think, uh, is the guy on our team who did it. And I, I looked into it a little more and it was just such, it's a hundred percent volunteer group. So there's not even like the director or anyone like that. There's, there's just no pay. The only money we get goes directly to equipment. So the first two years, the first year you're on it, you have to go through kind of like boot camp, which is a mix of rigging. So like roping and climbing, which I had never done before. So it's just that, that part was awesome. And then med tech, driving snowmobiles, evacuation techniques. There's a really cool like communication protocol that came out after 9-11. So you learn all that. So like so many volunteer opportunities, it was, I got so much more out of it than I ever could have put in. And so it remains maybe the, the best experiences of my life. But to your point, I mean, the unfortunate thing about search and rescue, uh, and you'll hear people who are in this group talk about search and recovery. A lot of times, unfortunately, you're out there to recover people who have passed away, either snowmobile accidents, avalanches, climbing accidents, things like that. Even had a couple that were just natural causes. I remember the first person who was deceased was a, an older gentleman who was just out cross-country skiing and he passed away. But he, I honestly haven't seen a lot of deceased people until, until this experience. And it was so bizarre because he, he was just peaceful. Like you could just see it in his, in his body. But then conversely, I mean, a lot of horrible snowmobile accidents that are, you know, high speed, high impact, some avalanches, 
I still remember an, a New Year's Eve mission where it was a good friend of one of our team members had passed away in an avalanche and he wanted to, to be there. And we went, went and got him and, you know, I don't know, it's probably one or two in the morning by the time we got there. It certainly does put things in, into perspective. You know, again, we're dealing with a, a crazy time now, but it does recalibrate what you want to spend your time with, what you want to be stressed about. I know you listen to this too. Like Tony Robbins has a saying, what's, what's wrong is always there. And so is what's right. And you kind of choose what you, what you want to focus on and, and seeing people called away too early definitely re- recalibrates what you're going to go do on a Thursday afternoon or, you know, maybe call your, call your mom or, you know, check in on a friend, things like that. Cause you just, you just never know. So I, I kind of say it was, I, we, we sold our house in Winter Park last year. And so I'm on, sort of reserve right now. And then as soon as we can get a place back up there again, I'll, I'll go full in again. I, it's, I, I can't tell you how much I miss it from a, a service and a camaraderie sense. Was joining the, the search and rescue your first experience with, with life and death? Had you uh, previously experienced loss personally or, or come across that? I mean, I mean, it was, you know, certainly the first time I had dealt with it physically, you know, being around a fair amount of people who are deceased and having to, to see that, which it is, you know, I hope folks don't have to do it on a regular basis, but there is something about it. I, you know, I, I can't imagine soldiers or, or folks who have to deal with that on a, on a regular basis. It, it does affect you, but, but no, I think the other, the other death that really hit me was my best friend at, at the time and someone who just really had a profound impact on my life was my buddy, Dan Nagy, who's just, he, he kind of looked like a young Laird Hamilton and had a Laird Hamilton. He, I, I wish they could have met sometime. I think they would have been buddies. He's just, he'd always go, you know, he'd always like in Wisconsin, there's kind of the, the giver, just, just do it kind of phrase. And, and Nags, as everyone called him, was, was just so good at that. He's, he's always there for you. And, you know, his, his family owned a big construction company that my, my dad actually worked for. And so, the, you know, they, they had a good life. They were financially secure, but drove like a, a GMC truck and hung out with, you know, jeans and had a Harley. And like, you would think, you know, he was just John Q. Public and that's, that's how he acted and that's how he treated people. And he was such a good guy. And when, you know, honestly, I was a really shy kid and really, <laughs> nervous. I, I was the only child and grew up kind of in the country and I just didn't have a lot of confidence. And I started playing soccer on the same team that Nags did when, when we were like 13. And he, even though he was younger than me, he took me under his wing, you know, sort of introduced me to his whole circle and brought me places. And then once we could start driving, kind of treated me like a, a brother. I remember we would work construction during the summers. He and I just like the the worst jobs. It was mostly a union company. And so we couldn't take like the union jobs. Um, so we would get like the crappiest jobs you, you could. So we would work construction from like 6.30 in the morning till 2.30 and then go wakeboarding like every day at their house. It was just the best. And I would hang out for dinner at, at their family's house a ton. And he was just, just pure life, you know, just a good soul. And he died in a plane crash. Gosh, about... 15 years ago now. The crazy thing was he was getting his pilot's license. 
they were flying to look at a job site and then go somewhere else. And he didn't feel comfortable flying with all the other folks on board. So they hired a pilot. And unfortunately, the plane crashed. It was like a real low ceiling environment. And he passed away. And then two other folks, no, three other folks from the company, one of which was my my dad's best friend, were also on the plane. And the company was just, uh, it was just, it was just devastating. And the community, I, I still remember Dan's funeral. They had to have two days of visitations because so many people came. Yeah, it was just, it was just rocking. When you're younger, I was, you know, 30-ish at the time. You just don't think that stuff can ever happen. And then it doesn't, especially someone like that. I know you dealt with unspeakable tragedy and it's, it's these people who are so full of life and you think they're invincible and you, you just like, you don't think it can happen. And so it was brutal and definitely, definitely rocked me. Yeah. I, I was uh, close to the same age. I was was 27 when Samantha, uh, my sister died. For me, it was, it was such a, a wake up call to how, how short life is in many ways. I mean, it was a lot of things and, and a lot of them terrible, but uh, you get these silver linings and it's, I'm curious, did that, did that event, wind up shaping the way that you did things or the way that you went about things or, or how you wanted to live your life? No, I think that was honestly a big part. It was right around the time I moved. I'm trying to remember the exact timing, but it, it, was, it was the impetus to, again, I was just not a, <laughs> I was not a confident kid. And then even on some levels, I was not a confident person in my, in my younger life. And it, it 100% just honestly, both in his life and his death. I mean, he, I, I remember once I was like, you know, it'd be really fun is to do like a mountain biking trip up in the boundary waters. And we'll just like put big backpacks on and we'll bike around and we'll camp at night. And like anyone else would have been like, that's crazy. And he's like, cool, let's do it. You know? And so he like spent, I don't know, six or seven days like biking around which wasn't, <laughs> the trails weren't great for mountain biking. And, and we would set up these campsites and like just having someone who has that vision on life, which I never had before. I mean, my, my family's very like risk averse and almost like, you know, depression era protectionist, you know? And so he was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. And um, so I think even when I, when I started racing for CU or started my own firm, whether it was his, his life or his death, it just had a profound impact on on how I thought about things. Yeah, a hundred percent. You mentioned, you know, thinking about how how fortunate we are and sort of the contrast of of losing somebody and how that how that colors the way you you view life and approach life. You know, now and and for much of your career, you you advise clients. I would think typically on on two ends of the spectrum, right? I mean, if if everything's going well or just middle, if everything's middle of the road typically you're not getting the call, right? It's, it's, you're getting the call is something's going great or something's going pretty bad. And certainly we've experienced some things together on both ends of the spectrum. How does the search and rescue, losing your best friend, the challenges, how does that affect how you approach those, those situations with, with clients or in your own career? No. And I think one of the ways it plays out more, more frequently than ever now is the team I get to work with and, and the, the younger attorneys that I get to, to shape is, you know, I'm so fortunate. I, I think of some of the younger attorneys who I get to work with and they'll come to me and they'll be so stressed 
I, I wanted to get this to the client today and I'm not going to be able to until Thursday or, you know, some, some other stressful issue. And I think it just gives you perspective. First of all, I just want to take that <laughs> stress because I think, you know, we've all had at times people in our lives who are the stapler throwers and the, the, the sort of almost that like fraternal or fraternity type mentality where, it's like I suffered, so you have to suffer a little, little bit of hazing. I'm not being anti-fraternity, but that's just not my style. And so I think internally, you know, I really try and just de-escalate and, you know, no one's dead. No one got their arm cut off. One of the things I always stress is bad news ages poorly. So if something's actually wrong, it's like, we're going to tell the truth. We're going to message it. We're, we're going to um, make sure we, we talk to the, the folks and address it. But, you know, 95% of the time, it's kind of a self-imposed stress. And so that's one of the things I think it's just given me that, that breath, whether it's a little bit of, I think meditation helps with that too, is just, okay, we're, we're where we are. The world's not over. And, and frankly, stressing out, I mean, that's one of the things search and rescue in particular t- teaches you is, you know, the adage in a lot of military folks, some combination of, what is it? Smooth is, oh God, no, I'm going to butcher it, but slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Exactly. Thank you. And it's like, okay, take a breath. Let's think about this. Being stressed, being freaked out is not going to help solve the issue and being methodical and thoughtful is. So I think there's there's that side of it, 100% both search and rescue from, from sort of a process and then some of the, some of the challenging situations, you know, even too, like owning your own firm where it's like, oh, we're growing now. We have a bunch of people whose mortgages and daycare and student loan payments all depend on you and we don't have enough for payroll this month, you know. That's stress. Some some where to for that we didn't catch the first time, but we have a chance to catch the second time is not not going to stress me out this time. So I, I think you just get perspective. But then the other thing, especially on a on a team level, and it's been interesting during this this COVID time. I don't know if if you've experienced this, but life is just kind of a blur, right? Like you get up, your computer's next to you, you kind of start working, you're around your house all day, you're working. You might take a break for a snack. You're working at night. At least that's kind of how I am. And it's like, you're not, it's not as defined to, oh, I'm going to go to the gym now. And I know that's something you do a lot is like you physically go places or, you know, you and I like to to eat out. And so you just don't have those opportunities. So it can be a blur. And so one of the things I'm stressing with our team is like, go take a break, you know, go for a bike ride, go for a run, go walk your dog. Like whether that's at one in the afternoon or five at night, like just do it because you got to take care of yourself um, in a time like this. So yeah, I, I think like all of life, it, things sort of meander in and out from, from different aspects and, and different perspectives. But if, if, if we don't have one thing in this, this COVID time is hopefully there's a little bit of time for self-reflection <laughs> as, as busy as we all are. When you're the head of the firm and you're, you know, you're responsible for everybody's student loan payments and, and mortgages and, and families' well-beings and your own, how do you navigate that when times are tough? When, as you said, the, the checks are going the wrong way. Can you talk about some of the more stressful periods that you've, you've had where the dynamics like that and, and how you get through it? 
Yeah, absolutely. You have to have your first principles, right? So if you don't know why, and I think we've both read Simon Sinek's book, Begin With Why, and his new one, The Infinite Game, is really, really good too. And if you don't have a purpose and you don't have something really driving you, I, I think when obstacles or stresses hit you, it can be really hard to overcome if you're not passionate about what you're doing. And I think thankfully, both from creating opportunities for the team, but also the folks I get to work with, and, and you see this too, I, I just feel so blessed to even be in this sphere and, and learn from people and get to be a part of their lives and get to be a part of helping what they're building. I just feel so lucky. So I, I sort of start with that. And when I am dealing with those stressful times, if I remember, you know, man, look at all the people I get to work with and be be part of their circle. Like most people kill for this and I, and I get to do it every day. So you start with that and then you start to, you know, I'm 45, so I'm getting a little bit older now. And it's like, you see that we'll get through these things, whether it's the firm issues or the COVID issue or the 2008 issue, it's like, we'll, we'll get through it. And I, I think that's a good reminder but yeah, I mean, I remember one of the most stressful times is we, we had the office in Boulder for seven years or eight years and some changes happened there. And we decided to also open an office in Broomfield, um, which for those who aren't from Colorado is like 10 minutes away. Like I often analogize it to Palo Alto's Boulder, you know, Sunnyvale or Milpitas or Cupertino is Broomfield. There's a lot of the bigger corporate parks are out there. and. So I had this idea. I was like, let's build an office there. It's a little easier for Denver folks. It's, it's a little easier to have a bigger office at a better price point. But we, we built it out. And by we, you know, other folks at the firm definitely helps with the work part. But I personally guaranteed the lease. I personally guaranteed the build out. I borrowed the money for the build out. Of course, things were delayed. Things were over budget. We were sort of quasi homeless as a firm for a while. And all of a sudden, you know, I went from the firm had always, we, we didn't even have a line of credit. I mean, I was kind of the line of credit for years and years and years. Um, I just built a reserve and, and when we had to go the other direction, we did. And then all of a sudden I was personally guaranteeing literally millions of dollars of debt between the lease and the build out and other things. And I was a single dad at the time, you know, there was stresses around that whole situation too. And yeah, that was I, I, what I was most worried about. I knew we could still do the work. I knew we could still sort of execute on the tactical, but I was worried that the team and my team wouldn't believe in the vision and would maybe start to get worried that we weren't going to make it and we're going to leave. And I think that was, and they of course didn't and they were awesome um, and everyone rallied, but, but I think that was, that was the biggest stress and just, you know, trying to be as transparent as possible and let people know what's going on. But, but also, yeah, you're, you're worried you're, you know, without a team, I was, I was dead in the water. And then, you know, I was thinking now all these awesome people I work with leave and now I have a personal guarantee and no team. That was not a good combination. Was that the biggest existential threat that you had faced as a firm? For sure. Yeah. A hundred percent. We, we honestly had been really lucky up until then, you know, we had some hires that weren't a great fit 
but you figure that out and, and you're always trying to improve the process with things like that. We had some big clients who didn't pay at times. And again, when you're the owner of a company, you, you get the benefit, but you also have to make up that shortfall. So yeah, that, that we really had been, knock on wood, really lucky that we just hadn't had any big, big stresses. You know, we never were sued for malpractice or anything like that. So, you know, you say that flippantly, but like statistically, it's just going to happen when you're a lawyer over, over time and knock on wood, it, it hasn't. But so we had never had any of those, those big challenges. So do you think going through that process, did that make joining a larger firm more attractive to you? Would you have, would you have made that, that move if you hadn't gone through that? Yeah, I think about that a lot, actually, because one of the things and one of the reasons why it took a year to make that decision, and I honestly looped in several of the, the really key folks at the firm who would have become partners soon, so I was really mindful. I didn't want to run away from something. I wanted to run towards something. And we had gotten through that crisis and the building was built. And, you know, the good thing about the building was we... we we leased it at a great time, even with the cost of doing the build out, the overall monthly cost was very good. But getting from the build out start to the end and all those costs, um, you know, anyone who's ever built a house or renovated, you might be able to refi it in the end and your monthly payment is, is great. But while you're going through it, you know, it's 20 grand here, it's 50 grand there, it's 70 grand there for, oh, there was an overrun for this. So, you know, to do the kitchen, we need another 20 grand. Well, you're like paying that with cash. Um, and so that's what made it really stressful. So, so we'd gotten through that and then all of a sudden, okay, our monthly nut is totally workable and we've settled back in and we're, we're settled. But I, I mean, I did. It, it was by far the most stressful time of my life. And I was aware, I, I was aware of that. And I think the discussions um, we had was really to do what we wanted to do as a firm. We probably had to get to at least probably 50 people. And I think we could have done it. But even then, I don't think we could have created as many opportunities for the team or done as well being of service to our clients and our friends if we hadn't merged. So, so we talked about it and, you know, even dumb things like we have dogs in our office, you know, Dave DiGiacomo, we famously tease because he doesn't like to wear shoes. So he's a big fan of flip flops uh, with his dress <laughs> pants, you know? And I was like, I was very transparent. I'm like, we're not giving that up. And everyone was super supportive. So I do think it had an effect. I mean, I think I'd be lying and, and honestly going through this time, now I'm so grateful to have this bigger platform and we have clients, you know, clients where their big customers aren't paying and we have bankruptcy experts and things like that that can help them navigate. But I, I, I can say, honestly, it wasn't like the driving force by any stretch. It was, it was a factor, but it was much more running, running towards something bigger and positive. You mentioned your clients and you deal with a lot of entrepreneurs You've seen a lot of huge successes and you've also seen a lot of uh, you know, huge, huge failures. What in your experience and from your perspective is the thing that, is there any commonality between the, the big successes and uh, the ones that, that don't work out? And secondarily, what's the, what's the deciding factor between the ones who 
aren't successful on the first try and get up and do it again. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think you have a lot of perspective from that uh, from that standpoint. No, I appreciate the, the question. And, and I do. I mean, this is one of those areas where I'm so fortunate. So I think from the successful folks, there, there's all different types to be certain. But I think a couple of things you just see on a regular basis. I mean, one, constant learning and sort of low ego. You know, I think we went through a time in the entrepreneur world where sort of abrasive, <laughs> cocky entrepreneurs were kind of the trend or, or CEOs at least. And thankfully, I think we've, we've worked through that phase. <laughs> you know, you have to be confident. You have to be an advocate and a zealot for your company to be certain. And, you know, you also hear no a lot or you're crazy a lot. So you, you have to have that perseverance. I think that that grid, I'd say, is the second big trait that comes to mind. But, but I think the, the lifelong learners, I can't tell you Every entrepreneur I talk to, they're either going to share the, the book they just listened to or read or the podcast or, hey, have you seen this article or I saw this data point. So I think just a constant thirst to learn and to, and to improve, that, that's the trait I, I see the most. And you see these businesses that pivot two, three, four times in the first couple of years. I mean, that takes a certain kind of person. And again, I think a, an open-minded, willing-to-learn, modest person actually does great there. Um, so that's definitely one trait. And then grit, like you see it. I was just listening to a podcast with um, the co-owner of Alina and you know Grant Ackett's partner. And, and you're seeing it like our friend Peter Waters uh, at Tiaco and so many folks, they're like, okay. <laughs> This business, you know, the, the come in. Those are restaurants. Down. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Yeah. This business can't work for the next three months, but I'm not going out of business. So what are we going to do? You know, like I'm going to survive. And that, that grit, that's, that's the other thing you see, whether it's through pivots, whether it's through cash crunches, whether it's just, just other existential challenges, that grit. And I think that's one of the things that I get so excited about. And I just feel so privileged to be part of that ecosystem is it's like, okay, cool. Well, that sucks, but we're, we're going to move on. You know, we're going to beat this. That's just a great energy to be around. And that, that infectious energy, you know, I, I know you get to do this a lot too. Like I I'm sort of getting pitched by companies probably twice a day, not to invest or anything, but they're, they're telling me their story. And it's like, I mean, I just, I talked to a great one yesterday about a, it's sort of a music uh, supporting musicians kind of platform. And, and I was like, man, I just leave these calls. I'm like, those guys are awesome. And I love this. And so often it's, it's the do well by doing good philosophy. And I mean, I'm just so fortunate to be part of that. So, so that grit. And then, I mean, the third one I'd say is just luck, you know, uh, a little bit of luck and a little bit of timing. I guess I'd lump the two together where you think of all the businesses like a bunch of ex Arthur Anderson folks started a grocery delivery service 15 years ago <laughs> and it spooled up and um, might even have been a little longer. And there's a couple other ones and it crashed and burned famously. And now it's like obvious, right? Like, of course you're going to get your groceries delivered, whether it's from Amazon fresh or Instacart or Uber eats for, for food, you know, restaurant delivery. So sometimes there's just a, a timing issue or, um, 
I think of the, the story of Instagram, the precursor to that was a, a famous athlete photographer. And some, sometimes the timing's just not quite right, or the platforms just, you know, maybe the, there's a missing technology. You know, the folks who originally worked on the iPhone concept years and years before the iPhone, um, you know, that crashed and burned, but, but the idea was right. So sometimes it's just, just a little bit of timing, a little, little bit of luck. And what about the ones that, uh, you know, the crash and burn, you, do you get to see many that uh, have to dust themselves back off and, and go figure out something new? And sort of what, what separates people from the ones that kind of go away and you don't hear from again versus the ones that uh, call you up the next day and, and have a new idea? Yeah. It's interesting, right? Because on some level, I have a self-selecting group because they're calling me generally. So they stay top of mind. But I think to our prior conversation, folks who are so passionate about something or have that that innate desire to learn or build, there's a lot of that desire to build too. I, I see that a lot. And that's the folks who, okay. And, and sometimes you see people who their first crash and burn is in a totally different industry and market. And I mean, it's their, their third or fourth business has absolutely nothing to do with their first or second. Um, so you know there's something more than just, oh, they're an engineer or they're a, an athlete who wants to create the next big power bar, or energy bar or whatever. So I think that that just desire to build something is is one of the traits that keeps people coming back. You know, I think it's one of the things that, I know PitchBook and our friend Jeff Erickson at Cardiff put articles up on LinkedIn about how many companies come out of these downturns. We talked about that earlier. And again, like I think one of the things that keeps people, if they have a business that fails from not starting another one is, hey, if you have a bunch of low risk, high pay opportunities, maybe I'll just go do that then instead. I spent the last you know three years making... 15 grand a year, maxing out my credit cards, working 20 hours a day, you know, maybe not taking as good of my health and, and whatnot as I should have. Or I could go work for company X for 350 grand a year and get some stock options. That suddenly looks pretty attractive. But if those jobs go away, then, you know, there's one less barrier to entry. And I think, again, in times like this, there's a few less opportunities to have that backdrop. Going back to how important timing can be. Indeed, indeed. So, Sean, we're, I think, uh, getting close to, to winding this up here. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I do want to go back to one question. You mentioned that the mantra or the, the principle that gets you through the tough times is going back to remembering what your purpose is. Yep. What is your purpose? <laughs> Hitting big at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think about it a lot, and I think if I were to encapsulate my purpose or what what I want to spend my time doing is is really and it's super ab, not abstract but broad but it's helping people become their highest and best self and you know that gets deployed specifically in helping entrepreneurs again a lot of times raise capital or build the right board or find the right opportunity or get the right introduction and obviously you know my a big core is getting the entity set up and getting the financing round done and all that. So it's, it's all those applications of, man, Michael has a great idea here. This is what he's passionate about. How can I help him 
get to his next level and fulfill what, what his dream is, what his vision is. Like when I get those moments, my wife will tell you, Renee, um, as I'm running around with a dorky Bluetooth headset on all day in our, in our loft right now, when I get off a call and I get to make that introduction that is going to lead to, you know, $10 million sale contract or a funding round or, Last night, our mutual friend Jason Mendelson reached out about helping um, one of the, the Defy Ventures folks with something. And it's like, it's a pro bono thing, but it's like, yeah, we can help with that. We can help this person rebuild their life. And there's, there's no money. There's no, I mean, I guess we're talking about, but there's, you know, there's, it's not like it's going to be on the cover of the newspaper or something. And it's like, I was just pumped afterwards. You know, I'm like, this is awesome. We can help this guy. So being able to, to do that side of things. And then also, you know, I work with this amazing team, both locally and around the country and just getting to, to help them. You know, I've learned a little bit through the years, so I can share a little knowledge, but, but just help them get a bigger platform and a bigger opportunity for them to, to become who they want to be. And that's all different things. I mean, some people are more my path. Some people are, are great technicians. Some people, want to do different things. And man, I just, I just love that. And again, I'm just so fortunate to, to get to do it for a big part of my days. And you know how I got there, a lot of it was beating my head against the wall, <laughs> um, doing things, you know. <laughs> classic I, I entrepreneurial way. <laughs> exactly. But I, you know, you and I talk about this for hours is we're so lucky to have all these resources now, whether it's podcasts or folks like Tony Robbins or, or Rich Roll or um, all these folks where you start, to, you start to hear the same things over and over, like don't put your ladder against the wrong wall. You, know? um, you climb the ladder and then you get to the top and it's like, well, I hate this. And so having the fortitude to do that and then great books like Ray Dalio's book was super influential as I was kind of crystallizing things. Um, First principles, which is newer, but like, I, I think a lot of times you have these ideas circulating in your head and you just need a little help putting them not to paper, but like crystallizing them. So folks like that, um, you know, Ben Horowitz, the hard thing about hard things and Jim Collins books, like, you just, all these things start to circulate. A great book I know I've told you about, Range by, I think it's Derek Epstein, just about synthesizing different areas into something. So yeah, again, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, a nerd this way too. I, I love to learn and I, I think that's kind of how I got there. It's awesome. Well, it's uh, much like the entrepreneurs uh, you support. That sounds like uh, certainly the commonality there. Huge, huge dork, uh, <laughs> at least for me. <laughs> If you don't keep searching, you're never uh, you're never going to find it. You're never going to crystallize it, right? Yeah, no, for sure. Well, Sean, it's been a real pleasure as always. Uh, yeah, whenever we get cool. to philosophize and, and have these types <laughs> of uh, conversations, if folks want to find out more about Michael Best, Venture Best, you, what's uh, what's the best way to find you? Yeah, appreciate it. So yeah, I'm. If you go to venturebest.com. That's that's our our main website, and ironically, we're we're working on a couple other entrepreneurial initiatives. The, our firm is very entrepreneurial, so stay tuned. I'm, I'm working on some things within within the firm there, and then LinkedIn. I'm I'm just Sean S H A W N Stigler on LinkedIn, and I do try and post. You know this too. 
I, I try to really never post much, if anything, about me, but always cool stuff clients are doing, cool opportunities, little little tidbits. So I promise it won't be a, a salesy LinkedIn page. I'm not a Twitter guy. I'm not an Instagram guy. So yeah, I'd say LinkedIn and and then the website is probably the, the best way to catch up with me. And last last thing, if for those who are maybe battling adversity right now, whether it's COVID related or something else, whether it's they're they're building their business or they're they're going through the uh, the many personal challenges that uh, lots of folks are facing right now, any any kind of last piece of advice you'd leave people with? No, and and again, I, I you know no one's sick in my family and we're healthy and but I would say you know if you can look, I, I've heard a lot of our clients and friends that I respect talk about this being an opportunity and same thing when a when a business struggles is for a reset or a pause or a, or having a little space to contemplate things and so if you have the capacity and you're not you know dealing with overwhelming stress treating this as an opportunity maybe to to read that book you've been putting off or try that program you've been contemplating or even I know you and I have talked like my wife and I have been playing around with our diet during this time because it's just an easy time to do that. So yeah, I mean, try and find that silver lining, I guess. And, uh, and yeah, stay strong. It's awesome. Well, thank you, Sean. Yeah. Thanks. This has been great. Thanks for indulging me here in this. uh, (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure we'll be chatting again soon. Yeah. Can't wait. Can't wait to see you for dinner soon. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Hopefully not virtually. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Indeed. All right. Take care, my friend. All right. Take care. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com. And you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path And I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.